Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. If you don't know our host, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV, Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows. She had her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Who's your guest? Oh, tonight we have a very interesting guest coming to us all the way from Colorado. He is a partner and shareholder with Littler. He's an attorney, and we're going to talk about him in just a minute. But, you know, we've had Larry Poneman on our show a few times, and we've talked about some of his surveys. And we have a brand-new survey that Philip Gordon did with Larry Poneman uh, on workplace surveys. It's a workplace survey on the privacy age gap. So everybody who's listening is going to be very interested, whether they're an employee or an employer or a future employee here at the university. Let me tell you a little bit about Philip Gordon's background. Philip Gordon is an attorney and a shareholder in the Denver office of Littler Mendelssohn PC, which is the largest law firm practicing exclusively labor and employment law. Phil chairs the firm's privacy and data protection practice group. He regularly consults Fortune 500 companies as well as medium and small businesses. And his concern is with compliance with uh, recently enacted state and federal laws, uh, data protection laws, HIPAA, privacy and security rules, and the European data protection laws. He also advises his clients as to security incident response, background checks, workplace monitoring of employee communications, and other privacy and information security issues in the workplace. In addition, he has substantial experience representing employers in trade secrets, wrongful termination, and privacy-related litigation. Phil Gordon has taught privacy and data security law as an adjunct professor at the University of Colorado School of Law. He's a member of the editorial board of the Privacy Officers Advisor, which is the monthly publication of the International Association of Privacy Professionals. 
Phil lectures and publishes extensively on privacy and data protection issues. I've read several of his articles, very interesting, and he's also the co-author of the book, HIPAA Privacy for Employers. Thank you so much for joining us, Phil. Are you out there? I am. Amari, thank you very much for inviting me to join you. I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. Great. Well, I thought this survey was really fascinating. I'm sure it was interesting and surprising for you also talking about the workplace survey on the privacy age gap. What do you consider to be the most important finding of that study for employers? Well, I, I, you know, I think the most important finding relates to monitoring of employee email at work and even away from work. Um, there was really a very low percentage relative to um, other types of monitoring. Um, let, me, let me phrase that a little bit differently. There's a very low percentage of respondents expressed concern that employer monitoring of their at work email or even work-related email sent over a web-based email account, or even yet um, email stored on their home computers related to work would be a privacy violation. It was really just 40% or a little bit less than 40% of the respondents felt that monitoring of work email was a privacy violation. That, that was both surprising um, and, and I think a very important finding for employers. You know, I thought of that when I, when I read it because I have a lot of people who will write to me on their email from work for, as my clients. And I tell them, did you realize that this is really not private? And I think they realize that it's not private, but they don't believe that their employer will read it. So when I point out to them, you know, you really need a Hotmail account or some other account that you would use instead of your email account from work to talk about private and sensitive information about, you know, even if you're encrypting it, you know, if you're going to be writing to your lawyer or your mediator, it's a good idea not to even have anything on your workplace uh, email. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that's correct? Yeah, I, I do think that's right. I think if you, if you have um, business which you don't want your employer to know about, then you should not send the email over your employer's email system. You know, my, my recommendation would be even over uh, a web-based email account. Um, it's better just to send that email from your home computer. Exactly. And anything that is sensitive should probably be encrypted or at least password protected. So, uh, ideally. Yes, ideally. So does the survey demonstrate that there is a privacy age gap? And, and if so, how, how does that work? Yeah, you know, I, I think there were some very interesting findings in terms of the age gap. And maybe to make it clear to the listeners, uh, we had two groups of respondents, those who are under the age of 30 and those over the age of 50. And one of the findings, which, which was really fascinating, was that respondents over the age of 50 were more concerned about um, their, their off-site activity. So, for example, uh, when we talk about location tracking, 84% uh, of older respondents said that it would be a violation of their privacy for their employer to track um, their location to determine whether or not they were slacking off from work. 
but only 59% of younger respondents um, felt that way. Uh, the gap was not quite as big with off-duty blogging. It was about 84% for older respondents and 71% for younger respondents. But um, you definitely see there, um, and maybe it is because um, employees over the age of 50 grew up with the notion of big brother, and they, they are more concerned about this idea of being tracked at work. Now, by contrast, um, the younger group of respondents expressed a higher level of concern about banning or searches of their personal devices. And I, and I thought where this really was crystallized was with iPods, where the 85% of the younger respondents said that it would be a violation of their privacy for their employer to ban iPods from the workplace, but only 68% of older workers had that reaction. And then um, also related to iPods, that more than three quarters of younger respondents said that random searches of their iPod uh, by their employer for trade secrets, for example, would be a violation of their privacy. Um, but just under 60% of older respondents answered that way. Do you think that perhaps many of the over 50 employees don't even have an iPod? Uh, it's interesting. It's something that Larry Potterman and I discussed, and uh, perhaps should have been one of the questions in the survey. And, you know, I don't know the answer to that because I have spoken to some of my colleagues, some of my clients, who were saying that if they banned... Um, iPods from the workplace, that, that they would lose all their workers because they're in uh, heavily urban uh, environments where many people commute to work and want to have their iPods while they're out riding the train or the bus. And presumably a significant number of those people are over the age of 50. Um, so I do, I do think you're right. I do think the use of the iPod does account for some of the difference, but um, I, I also tend to think that um, younger people, and, and this might be based on my observations of my 13-year-old daughter, uh, <laughs> but, but the younger, younger people do look at the iPod as a very personal reflection of their interests, and the information on the iPod uh, is personalized, and that, and, and that for that reason they might have a higher sense of privacy or expectation that of privacy around their iPod than, than older workers. Yes, I thought another interesting aspect that really would be a dichotomy of, of the ages would be on those social networks like Facebook and MySpace. What, what did you find out with that? What we, what we saw was younger, younger respondents were far more concerned about employers um, checking um, my face, I'm sorry, MySpace or Facebook um, in the job application process than older employer than older respondents were. Right, and I think that also might be that more young people, like maybe your 13 year old and and my kids in their 20s, 
more of them use the social networking sites than the older employees. Would you think that has something to do with it as well? I, I, I think that's, that's a large part of it. I also uh, think that you know, younger employees have grown up with a very different view of the web than, than older employees. I think that the older respondents simply view the Internet, and this might be a general, this is a generalization, but I, I think it's fairly accurate that they, they view the web as a tool for them to get what they need. Um, whereas I think the younger respondents view the web differently. I think they do view it as, as, a, as a place to socialize and not necessarily a place to socialize where anyone can watch them, even though that um, very well can be the reality on the web. Exactly. I do think that they see it as a place to uh, enjoy their peer group, and their peer group happens to be the world. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it is a whole different mindset. I, I really believe that. I thought that was interesting that 78% objected to the employer monitoring of their activities on the social networking. And, I mean, I, th- I think that's interesting, but I also think it's unrealistic because I do think that there are employers who will go and look on those social networking sites before they hire someone. Would you agree with that? I, I, I think that's right. There was, there was a, a separate survey, not our survey, but one conducted in 2006 by the National Association of Colleges and Employers uh, that reported a slightly more than one quarter of responding employers uh, do check social networking sites for information about job applicants. Although, interestingly, only a very small percentage of those respondents, uh, 7.5%, regularly check social networking sites. But to be honest, I, I would expect both percentages to increase significantly over the next several years um, as more and more younger um, human resources employees start working. And, um, you know, these, these younger human resources professionals are going to understand how to screen out information on social networking sites and, you know, what to view as kind of real and what is, you know, contrived might be too strong a word, but put on there to impress peers. And uh, I, I, I do think the trend towards reviewing information on so, social networking sites is going to be up rather than down. I think you're right. And I had a horror story Uh, conveyed to me just last week. I heard from an attorney who moved from Florida to California, and she had applied for a job with several different law firms, had great credentials. And when she applied for these jobs, she had actually gotten two of the jobs. And then after they reviewed the internet by doing a, a Google search on her, Um, the invitation to become a member of the firm was just taken, you know, taken away. And she did her own research on herself on Google and found that one of her old classmates back in Florida, um, who was in her law school class, had been putting up blogs saying things about her that were not true and that made her look almost as if she had committed crimes. 
And so this is really another thing. Talk about skeletons in your closet that aren't even real. I think that is going to be a huge issue for potential employers when you're talking about how are the human resources people going to know what is really true and what isn't, and how are they going to verify I think you're right, Mari, and, and, and that's an interesting story because I, I actually had one of my clients tell me a very similar story where two applicants were vying for the same position, and one applicant actually sabotaged or tried to sabotage the other by putting information on the other applicant, either blog or social networking site, that put the other applicant in a bad light. And, and so that raises an interesting question, which is, uh, you know, should employers implement some type of framework or procedure for using social networking sites as part of the job application process? Uh, now, you know, just from a, from a strict legal perspective, if the employer is itself going out and checking the sites, um, it has no legal obligation to do that. But uh, in a way, it is similar. This is kind of similar to doing a background check. And, and I think, um, although the issue has not yet been litigated or ruled on, but, but that if an employer were to rely on a third party to check social networking sites, it's quite possible that the requirements of the Fair Credit Reporting Act would apply. And what that would mean would be uh, the employer needs to give notice to the job applicant that social networking sites will be viewed uh, and obtain the applicant's consent. And then if the employer is going to take adverse action based in whole or in part on information received through that process, um, provide what, what is referred to as a pre-adverse action notice, um, saying, you know, we obtained information from you, about you, pardon me, about you, and we are relying on that, and um, you might want to check whether or not it's accurate because we are planning on taking adverse action. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether the FCRA requirements are imposed on, you know, a third party's harvesting of information from social networking sites, but it is a way to prevent the problem you raise. Well, you know, Phil, my experience, and, and you probably know this from representing employers, that the truth of the matter is when they do a background check or they do a credit report check, which they're entitled to do both, actually, and with the permission of the potential employee, that if they find something like, let's say, looks like a criminal background, uh, they may not tell the potential employee. They may just tell the potential employee, hey, there was somebody who was better qualified. That's been my experience with actual victims of criminal identity theft who didn't know it, is they were not told your background check showed that you're a criminal. They were just told someone else had better qualifications. So even though that is the law, and you're right, it seems to me what would be a, a new law that we probably should get is if you use any of the Internet or a background check, you should give a copy to the potential employee, whether you're going to hire him or not. There should be an automatic copy given 
to the potential employee so that he can see, yes, this is correct or this isn't correct. How do you feel about that? Well, uh, Maury, you're asking someone who, who represents employers <laughs> full-time. Yes. <laughs> and, and I am sure that many of my clients wouldn't, would not be thrilled about having additional uh, regulation and statutory obligations <laughs> Um, imposed on them. Right. So, yeah, I'm I'm hesitant to, to jump on the bandwagon yeah. for that one. <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I guess what I hear from is so many people who are victims of identity theft, whether it's cyber identity theft or criminal identity theft or financial identity theft, that, it's, they, that they don't know about it until they're rejected from a job, that you know, that it would be nice for them to have an opportunity to say, this isn't me, and I will come back and I will correct it and I'll show you this isn't me. So that that's one thing that I, I think would, would be helpful because we're finding there was a case that you probably know about it a few years ago. I think it was one of the investment companies had, um, had an employee who wanted to be promoted and they did. He uh, agreed to a background check before this promotion, and when they did the background check, they found that he had felonies, and they immediately put him on leave or fired him, and he said, this isn't me, and they just went ahead and dismissed him, and he was able to sue them, and he got, you know, and he won because it wasn't him and they had fired him without giving him an opportunity to correct and explain to them. Do you remember that case that was about probably about four or five years ago? You know, Maura, I have to say, I don't, I don't specifically recall that case, but, but it does point up uh, something that I would add, which is, you know, while it may not be an employer's interest to have um, a law requiring them to follow a certain process every single time they go to the web to get information about a job applicant. Uh, it very well may be in the employer's interest uh, to, as I said, put in some type of process where the job applicant has an opportunity to explain, particularly for applicants that the employer is excited about hiring. Uh, you know, if you get information that really is inconsistent with everything that um, you've learned about a job applicant after expending a significant amount of time and energy recruiting that person and making a decision about whether or not to employ them. I, you know, before you just jump into a termination decision or a decision to withdraw or revoke an offer of employment, um, why not um, go back to the person and say, you know, we obtained this information, and we we want to you know check it with you. It just it just doesn't seem to be consistent with everything else we know about you. And at the end of the day, um, that could end up avoiding the type of lawsuit that you talked about um, earlier, because uh, you know you can resolve the problem early on, and um, you know and, and make a correction or avoid avoid relying on bad information. Exactly. We're speaking with Philip L. Gordon, who is an attorney and a shareholder and a privacy expert, especially with regard to the workplace. He is a shareholder with Littler Mendelssohn, which is one of the largest law firms dealing exclusively with 
the workplace and labor and employment law. You know, let's get back to this survey because it was really fascinating to me uh, with some of the other things that you found out when when someone did believe or when an employee does believe that there is a privacy invasion, your survey shows he wouldn't go to the privacy officer. That just surprised me. That, that was a very surprising result to me as well. Um, perhaps one of the most surprising um, statistics that came out of the survey. And, uh, you know, my thinking on that might be uh, that, that the privacy officer uh, very often is tasked to focus on consumer privacy as opposed to employee privacy. And, and that might be the perception within the organization so that if an employee does have a complaint about workplace privacy, he or she is going to turn to the human resources department or a supervisor rather than the privacy official. And do you think that, you know, with the advent of all these chief privacy officers, and you're a member of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, as I am, many of them are chief privacy officers. Do you think they see their role as helping people who are uh, perhaps feeling that their privacy is invaded in the workplace as employees? Do you think they think that's their role? Well, you know, the role is really going to have to be defined by the, by the corporation, and I, and I think to date the role has, has been defined more narrowly to focus on consumer privacy. But, in, you know, I, I would strongly recommend that, that privacy officials start uh, bridging the gap between the human resources, uh, the human resources line of the organizational chart and their own line of the organizational chart. I think that privacy officials have trained privacy officers like you are, Marie, Mari, um, you know, with the CIPP certification have a different understanding of privacy than do people in the human resources department, human resources professionals, and that um, they can really add a very interesting, a very helpful um, depth to employee privacy that that would benefit the organization. Right. So how is the privacy gap significant for the employers that you advise? Well, you know, I, I think there are there are several points. Uh, one that is particularly important is if if the organization is focused on retaining, attracting, and retaining uh, younger job applicants because of the nature of the work, uh, that that there should be an increased focus on privacy. It was interesting to me that. Um, more than one quarter of the younger respondents stated that if they perceived that they were subject to a privacy violation, they would just go ahead and look for another job. And after spending a lot of time and energy recruiting uh, an employee, you don't want to lose that employee uh, because of a perceived privacy violation. I, I also think that employers need to uh, really focus on privacy in a more kind of global way, or I should say, um, you, know, you know, a fuller program to 
make sure that employees understand the employer's commitment to privacy because it is something that is important really both to younger and older employees. Right. So, you know, when you talked about the um, younger employee just willing to leave, I thought it was interesting because you talked about that as opposed to filing a lawsuit, whereas more of the older employees, if they felt that they were violated, the older employees might be more willing to file a lawsuit than just get up and leave. Was that your finding? Well, no, it wasn't surprisingly, and I'm glad you pointed that out. And and I really did expect a, a much higher percentage of older respondents to be ready to talk to a lawyer and um, and go to court. But really, well, there was a slightly higher percentage of younger respondents who said that they would file a lawsuit if they felt their privacy had been violated by their employer. Interesting. And, you know, as, as one who mediates a lot of these workplace uh, issues, whether it's privacy or wrongful termination or sexual harassment, any of those things, um, I always tell people you're better off not filing the lawsuit but mediating it and never file because all of that information will become public record, which will again be on on the Internet, which employers, potential employers, could see that information and decide that you are a litigation risk. And uh, so it, in a way, it kind of surprises me that the younger people would would want to litigate because that may inhibit their chances for future jobs. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, and you're right there. And there is an in- interesting contradiction there because uh, – the younger respondents were nearly unanimous in stating that that they would view it to be improper for their employers to use their court history or legal history without their consent. Uh, So you're right that that the younger respondents were, were very concerned about their their legal history and court history, and yet at the same time seem to be somewhat more willing than the older respondents to get into a court fight with their employer over a privacy violation. Yes, interesting. Maybe they don't realize that all that information that's public record is readily available to their employers. So it's, uh, it's interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. Now, when we talked a few minutes ago about the privacy officer really focusing on consumer privacy and websites and all the privacy policies, et cetera. Um, do you think that the study shows any information about how organizations are handling workplace privacy differently than employee privacy? Oh, uh, yeah. And, and I'm sorry, Murray, did, did just want to make sure that we're on the same page. Did you mean a, a comparison between consumer privacy and employee privacy? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was very surprising, the, the gap between consumer, how consumer privacy and employee privacy are handled. Uh, nearly two-thirds of respondents, regardless of age, stated that their organization had a privacy policy related to consumers, but only 20% 
of respondents said their organization had an employee privacy policy. So to me, that's that's an enormous disparity. Yes. And, you know, I it, it's interesting because I have had people come to me who were victims of identity theft in the workplace. And you brought up a case in one of your articles about the Ligand incident. That case came to me first. I was contacted by a woman who had worked uh, for Ligand many years before as a scientist, a research scientist. And she told me that she found out from her other fellow scientists who also were previous employees that they all became victims of identity theft. In other words, they were on like a listserv together, about a hundred of them. Uh-huh. And someone, they would talk about different things, their jobs, and, and lo and behold, they find out that they're all victims of identity theft. And they tried to figure out what was it that we all have in common, and it was that they all worked for this company. And we found out later that this company had a bottle washer, a woman who was a bottle washer, who had access to a room that she could go into with old employee payrolls of information in boxes and boxes. And what she did, and you know, the payroll information has the social security number on it, although in California, that's changing as of uh, this year. But it had everything in there about their birth date, their social security number, their address, their former address, their marital status, all that information that was in their personnel files. And this bottle washer just took it home in boxes in the back of her trunk and sold it to friends and also used it to get credit cards. And this all happened through <laughs> Ligand. So that's how, I don't know if you knew the whole story, but that they all came to me first and then that's how that thing got started. And we found um, litigation consult to take it in, in San Diego. But there is a real problem with the uh, information that is gathered in the workplace all of the information that's gathered about you in the workplace, and then how is it protected? How is it safeguarded? That's the issue that, you know, if you're going to guard consumer information, you also need to be protecting and safeguarding employee information. So that's uh, that's another issue that goes on. So what can employers do? who decide to put more of an emphasis on workplace privacy to persuade their employees that they're really caring about them and their personal information? And that's a great question, Mari. I, I, I think the starting point is putting in place an information security program similar to the type of program that many organizations have put in place for consumer information which would mean looking at what categories of employees in the company have access to sensitive employee data. Do those employees really need to have access and and controlling or limiting their access to a need to know, uh, making sure that only trusted employees have access to employee data. Um, it could be either you know someone who has years of experience with the company and is known well within the company or has undergone a background check. Uh, working with vendors, so many 
human resources departments now depend on third-party administrators for their benefits uh, administration and, and other outsourcers who receive uh, large quantities of very sensitive employee information, making sure that those vendors are vetted for their trustworthiness and that agreements with those vendors contain um, terms which require the vendors to provide adequate security for the information. Uh, also, an another major problem which I see is with terminated employees, that, that very often um, employers sometimes are not as quick to act after an employee is terminated, for example, uh, to turn off their access to the network. And, and unfortunately, I've, I've had to get involved in several cases where former employees have effectively been able to get back into the network because their passwords had not been turned off and take trade secrets or sometimes sensitive data. Uh, your, the, the story you told about the ligand incident um, shows the, the importance of disposing properly of old records and making sure that they are shredded or burned or in the case of electronic data that they are you know magnetically swiped or otherwise tested by the IT department to make sure that that the data cannot be easily retrieved and I think that there are now a legion of stories about dumpster divers who, who have um, obtained sensitive data about employees just because it was not disposed of with care. So that, that would be one piece. And then probably the two other uh, pieces that I, I would focus on would be one is, is just ensuring legal compliance. There are a large number of federal and state laws today which have an impact on workplace privacy. Uh, the HIPAA security rule and privacy rule the Fair Credit Reporting Act, uh, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, all, all of those statutes should be, or, or the employer's compliance with those statutes should be reviewed. And then probably the last leg would be to, to put in place some type of overarching program involving workplace privacy and, and explaining it to employees. So, for example, if new technology is rolled out in the workplace, such as location tracking, which, as our, our survey results reflect, employees are going to view as invasive of their privacy, then the employer should make a special effort to explain to employees what the benefits are of the technology to the employee, to the business, why is the technology being implemented, and and how the technology is being implemented in a way to minimize the potential or perceived privacy infractions uh, from the employee's perspective? You know that is such an important part of of I think what's coming in the near near future. Whether we're talking about biometric information, if I have to use my facial scan to get into the building or my fingerprint or some piece of my body to get into the building or if I have to wear a badge that has an RFID in it, 
I know it's pretty funny. We heard a story from uh, Senator uh, Joe Simidian, who is a senator here in California, who has introduced last year as well as this year RFID legislation. And an RFID, as you know, is the radio frequency identifier. And the senators were wearing badges that had an RFID in it, but they weren't informed about it. And so as they would go into the Senate chamber to vote, they didn't know it, but their badge was tracking them to see if they got there or whether they were there or they weren't there, whatever. And uh, Joe Simidian, Senator Simidian, revealed to them that there was an RFID in their badge and they didn't know about it. So transparency is really a huge issue, I think, not only in the Senate, but in the workplace. If you're going to wear something that is tracking you, you should be aware of it. Would you, would you agree? I, I, I do agree. I, I think that employers are always better off providing notice to employees when there is surveillance going on. I, I think there is a huge temptation to fall back into the idea of let's catch somebody in the act. Uh, but the, the reason I always, I always hesitate to take that approach is, you know, if you are trying to deter certain conduct, then the best way to deter it is to tell people in advance that you have the ability to observe if they engage in that conduct. And then they won't do it because they know they'll get caught, rather than letting the conduct happen and then having to deal with the consequences of it. And uh, also it's interesting that it, there is a lot of potential for mistakes in using location tracking technology, um, both RFID technology and GPS global positioning system technology. For example, let's say... Um, one day, for whatever reason, someone has the wrong badge and they walk past the RFID receiver and, um, and, and so the system shows that the person to whom that badge is assigned was in a certain place when in fact they weren't. But there's no way for the machine for the computer to realize that, the computer just records the fact that that particular badge passed the receiver. And, um, you know, I, I think those types of situations can, can generate problems, whereas if people know in advance that they will be tracked, that their badges will be tracked, they're going to be more careful about the way they, they handle their security badges. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right because it is, it's like, okay, now you know that we have cameras here. Like in the studio where we're sitting, there are cameras. So if I were to steal some equipment from this studio, they would see me do it. Now, I wouldn't want to steal the equipment, but, but there are people who have done things in the studio that have you know, been fired, so to speak, because they were doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing. But everybody had noticed that there's cameras here. So I think you're right. I think that there should be that transparency and that notice. Let me ask you another question. Uh, One of the survey questions asked about inserting a microchip into an employee's arm as a condition of gaining access to certain sensitive information or trade secrets. And uh, there was a strong sense of violation among the respondents. 
Is is this something that's coming? I mean, we talked about RFIDs. We talked about biometrics. Is microchipping really going to? You think that's coming very quickly too? Well, it's that's a great question, Mari, and and I think I think it is there. It's on the horizon. It has been used. I I remember the first time I read about it was uh, after I had seen one of the Mission Impossible movies. And when I had, when I watched that movie and saw the chip being inserted into um, the arm of the character who was playing Tom Cruise's girlfriend, I, I was really fascinated. And then when I read that the in the office of the Attorney General of Mexico um, that several employees had RFID chips inserted in the event they were kidnapped. And I, and I thought that was just mind-boggling. Um, there was also a story, I think it was June of last year, about a company in Cincinnati called CityWatcher.com, which, um, which had this type of requirement that if you wanted to gain access to the company's most sensitive trade secrets, you or there's a, a special computer room, you had to have a microchip inserted in your arm and I think it was that story that actually generated a lot of legislative interest in this area. So, so there are state legislators that are examining this question about mandatory microchipping. Uh, you know, I did it for my dog, but I don't think I'd want to do it for my kids, you know, That's because right. my dog can't talk. You know, <laughs> and and that is one of the things that we did. You know, what he's going to be he's six years old, so we did it when, but you know, five years ago. But yes, I had read about in Mexico also because there's so many kidnappings, and that way they could track them. But in order to get, there's a big difference in tracking for kidnapping, which I those were voluntary. I think it was that the um, the attorney generals in Mexico or the DAs, whoever they were, were actually volunteering to do this for their safety. But to make it mandatory is very different. Additionally, it seems to me that if I'm going to have access to certain sensitive data in, my, in, my, in a computer or in a room, why can't I use at least a less invasive procedure such as using my fingerprint, which is not embedded in me, and it's not, it's not a GPS, it's more of an authentication. So I, I would like to use something a little bit less invasive if I don't absolutely have to have the GPS. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I do, and I think that raises a great point, which is uh, just whenever new technology is introduced into the workplace, I think it is important for employers to step back for a minute and just examine, you know, how is this really going to work? What is our objective? And can we achieve that objective through use of either this technology in a way that is as least invasive as possible or through a different form of technology? A good example um, would be our, you know, our hypothetical question uh, to to respondents about a ban on iPods, and and the reason that an employer might consider a ban would be that, that iPods have such enormous internal memory, and and could be used to download trade secrets from the employer. 
have. But banning iPods would cause a near revolt, at least among employees under the age of 30. And there, there probably is a back-end solution you know, where you can talk to your IT department and prevent the downloading um, on that end rather than taking away an, an item that is going to cause a lot of disgruntlement among your employees. You know, when I think about the iPod versus those little tiny USB plugs that you can just, you know, download terabytes practically, right? And and so, I mean, there is that whole issue of the dirty insider who can get access not only to trade secrets, but to identification of other employees and steal their identities. I mean, there's a lot of things that can be done with uh, access to the computer files. So it is it is going to be a big challenge. So it, it seems to me if you're going to ban iPods, you're, you're going to have to ban a lot of the other uh, little tech technology pieces as well, and they're so tiny now. You can put even your cell phone, right? You can practically download things onto your cell phone. Are they That's gonna... right. Or take pictures with your camera phone and then download it to the web. Right. So how did they feel in the study about camera phones in the workplace and, and cell phones and photos? Well, inter- interestingly, um, there also was a relatively high high degree or high sense of privacy violation if employers were to ban uh, camera phones or search them, although, again, kind of consistent with the results we found on the iPods, that the the sense of privacy violation is higher um, among younger employees than, than the older respondents, um, although conversely with images of themselves that the younger respondents had a very low sense of privacy in their employer's use of, of their digital image as compared to older employees. And I, I thought that was that was an interesting finding. I think I think older employees who have who grew up in an age where photographs were not so fungible and not so easily moved around the world um, are still a little bit nervous about the idea of their picture showing up all over the place. I also think that more of these young people are putting their picture up on Facebook and and MySpace and Match.com than than the older people. You know, it be, it's actual a, actually a cultural thing to put your pictures up and your friends' pictures up. And I, I don't think that they see it so much as a privacy invasion because they're doing it themselves. That's right. You know? I think that's right. Yeah. A- another thing I thought was interesting is that it-, it came out that the older you are, the more you worry about your privacy. That's That was another finding, right? Yes, it was. And I suppose another example of the privacy age gap. And you know, my reaction to that is is that the older you are, the more you have to lose. And so, so that older uh, respondents are just more concerned about identity theft than younger respondents. And kind of consistent with that, another interesting finding was we asked um, the respondents to identify the categories of personal information that that they were most concerned about protecting. And the six or seven categories identified um, were the same for both age groups, but the ranking 
was different, and the most startling disparity was related to the Social Security number, where 96% of older respondents expressed concern about their employer using their Social Security number without consent, but the number of younger respondents was, was about in the 70% range. And I think, again, that relates to this lower degree of concern about being victimized by ID theft. Yes, and I think also many older people that are much older than 50, maybe in their 70s, that contact me or I, I get emails from them saying, the Social Security number was really just for us to have Social Security when we're in, in our, you know, uh, prime of our retirement. And that was the reason that it was collected so we could have our earnings benefits later. It was not meant to be a de facto identifier. And truly, that is correct, that when we they established the Social Security number, that was the reason. And then it became the uh, de facto ID for all your tax purposes for your IRS when you have a W-2, when you have a 1099, a W-9, all those things. And then the credit bureaus decided that that's how they were going to identify us. So that has become the de facto ID that the younger people, I think, the ones 30 and younger, are so used to being having that be their quote, unique identifier, end of quote, that they don't see it as as much of a big deal as the older people. And then I think the elder generation is really, like you said, more worried about what they have to lose with identity theft. So uh, it's it's interesting. It's historically, you know, I'm, I'm in that over, older generation. I'm the one that's older than 50. So I can I can relate to that issue of the SSN, which gets back to that issue of when you were talking about how you advise employers not to collect more than they really need. And that is one issue of why do they need to be collecting the Social Security number unless it's for some tax purpose? Well, that, that's, that's an interesting issue that, that does come up a fair amount in my practice. Uh, where I will review a job application form that will ask for the Social Security number, and I will ask my client, you know, do you really need this piece of information at this stage of what really is a potential employment relationship? And the, the only time that I really think it's, it's necessary for an employer to gather a Social Security number is part of the job application process is if they are going to conduct a background check for the very reason, uh, Mari, that, that you, you mentioned before, that the credit bureaus um, now use the Social Security number as a unique identifier. And that, that is really the only way you can be sure you're getting a background check report about the right person. Um, but for the most part, I, I recommend that employers avoid collecting the social security number until they absolutely need it. And and, and interesting to the credit of of employers out there, I, I do see an increasing level of concern about sharing employee social security numbers outside the organization. I get a lot of um, requests from our clients for advice on, you know, can we disclose 
the social security number to a vendor? Can we disclose it to a government agency? Can we disclose it to a business partner? And and employers are their their um their radar is up on this issue. I think probably because you know they are um, the people who are the employers are also people who potentially are victims of identity theft themselves. Right. And the other thing is now that we've had, you know, our California security breach notification law that has really um, helped to spur many new other state security breach laws that if the social security number is um, a part of a security breach, we know that that's one of the main personal identifiers that will cause a an entity to have to disclose uh, unless it's encrypted. So that's another reason you might want to just keep that out of there unless you absolutely need it. Well, Lloyd is saying that we have just a couple of minutes. I wanted to ask you to just tell us, two, we have two minutes, he says. As an attorney with, with a unique practice focusing on workplace privacy issues, where do you go from here in light of your studies, information, and results? Well, you know, really where I go from here is is focusing on helping my clients and and others in the future in building an employee privacy program and trying to develop uh, policies, practices that are fully compliant with all of the new privacy laws and regulations that are being put in place and at the same time meet uh, the employer's interests and are also sensitive to employee concerns about privacy, uh, making sure that that privacy program is a way to build employee trust and loyalty, a way to um, encourage employees to stay and to attract new candidates and make them want to work at, at the employer's organization, that, that, you know, the privacy program really can be an integral part of the organization, not just um, an island unto itself. You're right, and, and your clients are very lucky to have you as their attorney and their great guider and advisor. So um, privacy is good for business, right? It makes people trust you. If, you, if they trust you, um, I think they're going to do business with you. So I think you're going to do uh, great things for your employers. So thank you so much for joining us, Philip, and we will talk to you soon. Mari, thank you for your time. I, I really enjoyed our time together today, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Philip L. Gordon, who is an attorney and a shareholder with Littler Mendelssohn in Colorado, and he is an expert on privacy in the workplace, and he has actually done a study with the Poneman Institute which was which what we were just talking about, workplace privacy on the privacy age gap. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. To learn more about our previous guests, listen to their interviews, download podcasts, write us emails, ask for more information on privacy, and see who our upcoming guests are, please visit 
KUCI.org slash privacy. Please stay tuned now for Assorted Audio with DJ Alex. Great music. And thank you, Lloyd. And see you next week here at 5 p.m. on Privacy Piracy. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.